Welcome to the Hollywood and Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. The hit cast offers a weekly look at Hollywood from a conservative point of view. Sick of media bias infecting Hollywood headlines? Tired of stars insulting your views? Hit has your back. Now, here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to episode 18 of the Hollywood and Toto podcast. This week's interview is with drummer Nick Ruffini. Nick isn't just a touring veteran. He's helping the next generation of drummers find their groove via his drummersresource.com website. But before our chat, I wanted to talk a little about a nasty trend in our culture. Call it the weaponization of shame. Now, shame can be a good force, but it's used very sporadically these days and sort of in a very targeted way and not a fair way by any stretch. And I wanted to kind of point that out by giving a few examples. This is one that kind of irked me from a few years back. It was involving Bill Maher, of course, the HBO show host. He made a joke about the Palin family a couple of years back, and I have to say, I found it reprehensible. Now, Sarah Palin's a celebrity. She's a politician. She's fair game to a certain extent. I don't want to say the nastiest things about her or anyone, but certainly she's not within the uh, protected class as far as comedians go. It's game on, and so be it. But what Bill Maher said one time was pretty reprehensible. He basically called her and her family out, comparing them to the mutant clan in The Hills of Eyes. Now, in case you don't know, Sarah Palin has a special needs child, a Down syndrome child, as part of her extended family. And uh, clearly, Bill Maher was including that child within that group. But you know what? No one complained. No one cared. And frankly, I reached out to some groups that represent Down syndrome uh, people, and they didn't seem to care at all. I think only one of the sources I reached out to seemed to have uh, any sort of trouble with what Bill Maher said. Now, flash forward a year or two, you had Jason Biggs, the star of American Pie. He talked about Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney, their wives, and he kind of made some very aggressive sexual jokes about them on Twitter. Again, politicians are big boys, are big girls. They should be used to it. But you know what? When you drag in the wives of politicians, pretty nasty stuff again. Once more, no outrage, no shame, no sort of media frenzy uh, calling him to task for those kind of comments. Nothing happened. Of course, something happened on the right. Conservatives like myself called it out and questioned what was going on. But overall, nothing happened. Much more recently, of course, we've heard Madonna talking at a women's march and saying how she had the, all these desires about blowing up the White House and that she ultimately decided that maybe that wasn't a good thing or that maybe wouldn't help overall. And I'm thinking, wow, what kind of rhetoric is that? And of course, I scanned the media and some people reported on it for sure, but there was no outrage. There was no call for her to apologize, to explain herself. She didn't suffer anything in the way of shame, in the way of losing gigs. No one was outraged by it in the press except for the conservative press. Of course, there was a conservative so-called in the White House with President Trump. You could quibble with that, but he certainly is a member of the GOP, and maybe that was the reason why. Much more recently, this week, in fact, we had Tim Allen. Tim Allen, the veteran comedian, the star of ABC's Last Man Standing, he was on Jimmy Kimmel Live recently, and he talked about being a conservative in Hollywood. He is one, one of the rare ones, actually, who's out and proud. And he said being a conservative today is kind of like being uh, in Nazi Germany in the 1930s as far as the repression of speech, the repression of ideas. Now, I don't think it's his best joke. I don't know if it's his worst joke, and maybe he said, he said a lot worse, but a little bit of a clunky analogy, but he was clearly joking, clearly laughing as he said it. But that wasn't enough for the Anne Frank Center. They actually reached out 
via their Facebook page with Stephen Goldstein, who's their executive director, and he slammed Tim Allen. Tim, what were you thinking, he said. How dare you make that comparison? That's the ugliest thing in the world. You need to apologize to the Jewish people. Now, I can understand that, except the Anne Frank Center seems to be pretty quiet with every other Hitler reference that we've heard over the last year regarding Donald Trump. Now, it's been everywhere. This isn't just an isolated incident. This is Cher. This is Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day. This is Sarah Silverman on the on the Conan show. It is ever-present. Everyone seems to be making comparisons between Trump and Nazi Germany to Hitler. You name it. The Hitler card has been playing right, left, and in between. So why was that particular center quiet for all those times? What happened? What was different? Why was Tim Allen saying so wrong? And yet at the same time, everyone else seemed to get a pass. That was the question I had. So I reached out to the Anne Frank Center directly. I I reached out to his spokesperson and also Goldstein directly himself to get some answers. What I got was, well, Goldstein wrote back right away, which I was very glad about. He said, you know what? We don't take that kind of approach. We don't sort of selectively choose who we're outraged by. We tell people, even our members all the time, hey, you can't make those kind of comparisons. And I wrote back, that's great. Glad you wrote back. Now can I have some examples where you chastise a particular celebrity since we've been hearing that so often the last year? Radio silence. Nothing. Now, I did a Google search to try to punch up some key terms. Anne Frank Center, celebrities, Hitler, Hollywood. I didn't come up with anything. I don't think there's been anything. I think we would have heard about it because when Tim Allen said that and when the Anne Frank Center put out that notice, guess what? It was all over the media. USA Today, Variety, Entertainment Weekly, they all covered it. So I'm thinking if another celebrity used the Hitler card and the Anne Frank Center replied or chastised them, I think it would have been all over the press. I don't think it was. And again, I don't think this is an isolated incident. I think this is just the way our culture works. It depends on the target. Now, in this particular situation, you had a conservative comedian and he was called to task with something he said. And yet liberal comedians, liberal stars, liberal celebrities, they don't get chastised. Bill Maher attacked a conservative, Sarah Palin. So she wasn't deemed worthy of protection. If Bill Maher had targeted someone else, maybe a popular liberal politician, do you think the situation would be different? I sort of suspect it would. Again, backtracking a month or two when Madonna said she thought about blowing up the White House, if that was President Obama calling the White House home at that particular moment, you think there have been no outrage? you think there have been any calls for, for apologies, any sort of uh, uh, retribution for what happened? I think there would have been. Frankly, the answer is why not? Why is it different? And that's the cultural question we have to ask. And part of it, I think, deals with the media. We talked about here on this podcast and also it's all over the web, the out-and-out bias in the media today towards progressive agendas. It's clear. It's obvious. So when a Bill Maher says what he says, the liberal journalists who work for the various outlets, they don't say a word. They just sit on their hands. They don't rush to their keyboard to type up something. They don't share their outrage because they're not outraged. It's Sarah Palin. We can say what we want about her. If it extends to her special needs child, well, Sarah Palin's child. I guess we don't need to protect her or him. So that's what we're dealing with here. It's upsetting, and it's something I've been tracking for years as as a Hollywood observer, and it's really, frankly, it's frustrating. And I'm waiting for that moment where someone within the journalism ranks stands up and says, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? This is wrong. This isn't right. 
why is the coverage so imbalanced? It certainly hasn't happened yet. So from this point on, I'll keep doing it. I think some of my peers on the conservative side will do it as well. But the bottom line is we want a fair, a fair playing ground. We want an open situation where people get protected for all the right reasons. If someone had said something nasty about Michelle Obama, the first lady, my goodness, I'd be the first one to say that's absolutely wrong. Wrong, period. But when the rapper like Bow Wow says that they're going to pimp out First Lady Melania Trump and there's no outrage from the press, well, that speaks volumes. I want to switch gears a little bit and get to the hit tip of the week. It's a movie called Blue Jay that was completely off my radar, but not anymore. I found it recently on Amazon Prime, and it's one of those movies where as soon as I read the descriptions, I'm in. It's about two people out in the wilderness. They're doing a massive hike. It's very dangerous. And they stumble upon four different people who are also on the hike, but those people don't seem to have the best intentions in mind, so conflict arises from there. Read the description, checked it out, really enjoyed the film. It's um, not the kind of typical story you, you normally see because the couple in question, the ones on the hike, are dating, but they're not boyfriend, girlfriend. They're not married. They're not on a honeymoon. He's not about to propose and he's got the ring sort of hidden in his jacket. They're just getting to know each other. And I thought that was a really interesting twist because they don't necessarily trust each other yet. They don't know how they feel. Of course, there's an attraction. Of course, they've decided to kind of spare this particular time to go on this trip. But you know what? They don't know what's going to happen next. And of course, when they meet those four people, anything can happen. It's a thriller. It's good. I have to say, I didn't quite buy the ending. You'll have to kind of check it out for yourself. But Blue Jay, it's on Amazon Prime right now. And just a quick little note. After I saw the movie, I was so impressed by it, I went out and kind of checked out who, who did it, who wrote it, the stars. I, I wasn't familiar with the actors involved, but one of the main stars is Sarah Lindsay. It turns out she co-wrote the film as well. So it turns out she's got a website. I reached out to her, and we recently had a nice chat, and that'll be an upcoming story on Hollywood in Toto. Now it's time for this week's interview. Nick Ruffini is a world-class drummer who understands the business side of music all too well. He's toured the world, working with big acts like Melba Moore, Fish's Paige McConnell, and Melvin Sparks. But he's just as driven about helping his fellow drummers and aspiring drummers join his ranks, both through his website, drummersresource.com, and the accompanying podcast. I love that approach, which is one of many reasons why I reached out to him in the first place. So here's my chat with Nick Ruffini. Well, you know, I have read that you started drumming at the age of 15, and obviously, I think you took to it pretty well. So, But take us back to that those early days. You're a teenager. You're playing the drums. Did, did you kind of get the sense this is your career or was it just love at first sight or I, I, I always think you know when we first can fall in love with something it is kind of a special time so uh, what was we it like to, for you then we, we got to go back farther than that okay so, <laughs> we have to go back i was man i was probably like 10 or 12 and i was listening to bobby brown records and and like i, I was listening to all this rap my brother was was into rap and i always i wanted to be an entertainer I wanted to be someone who was in front of people doing things. And this is the craziest, this is what blows my mind. I never even considered, thought about, it never even crossed my mind that I could be a, mus- a musician. Mm-hmm. It was like I had to be, I either had to rap or sing or dance or something. And I don't know why I never, I was never, I was never like, oh, maybe I could play guitar. Or maybe <laughs> I could play drums or something like that. So I, I played piano from a from a really young age. I played piano for about nine years uh, when I was when I was really young, and you know played at concert recitals and all that stuff. Uh, and then gave it up, started playing baseball. And then when I was fifteen, my brother, I, I sort of do everything that my brother does. So my brother started listening to rap. I listened to rap. He started skateboarding. I started skateboarding. He 
started playing drums and he was in this you know pseudo band <laughs> and there was a, my parents had a party at their house and he convinced them to let his band play and the guy who brought his drums because my brother didn't even have a drum set yet left his drums there and he left them there for a few weeks and I just I could not stop playing <laughs> I just it was just but it was frustrating because you know you sit down and you just sort of you know, for lack of better words, you just want to rock out, and I couldn't do anything. You know, so I but I took to it well, and, and took to it pretty quickly. But I, I I remember sitting there thinking, I really want to know, I really want to figure out this instrument. Like I really want to learn how to be. I want to be able to sit down and play, and not sound like tennis shoes in a dryer. So, right. Um, so yeah, that was like that was the beginning of it. And then my brother got a drum set, and so I was practicing all day, every day. Like I'd run home from, I'd get off the school bus, and run home, you know, and uh, and play. And then I would I would literally skip school. Like I would go to school and then and like you know skip a class or two <laughs> to go home and practice. That's a good sign. Now obviously you would. Well, long term it worked out well for you, so we can we can put it that way. I I know you you eventually went to college. And studied both music and, and business, but were you at this point when you were just starting out? Were you self-taught, or did you find any sort of local instructor to help you? Or how did you kind of get to the next level? I, I took a, a few cursory lessons in the beginning, just really basic. I mean, I think I took like three lessons or something like that, uh, and then I would just play along with records, and I played along with records for a really long time, and. Then I started playing in a band. I started a band, maybe. Well, I started like jamming with guys, and I started a band when I was like eighteen. But I remember I was playing along with records, and I excelled really quickly. And everybody kept telling me how good I was, and it went totally to my head. <laughs> and I was, I, I and I wasn't like a jerk about it, but I thought in my head, I was like, I'm the man. I'm this great drummer. And then when I started gigging out and I started seeing other people playing, I realized that I had a lot of work to do. And so then I, I found some, some really high-level teachers and, and started studying with a lot of people. Uh, and then got really serious about studying. And then I got into college. And got, college was a game-changer for me, um, just playing. And I played in every single ensemble that you can think of. And I played jazz band and I, pl- I never did march. I'd, n- I'd never been in marching band. Uh, they asked me to do that in college, but I didn't do it. But I was in jazz band and percussion ensembles, and African percussion ensembles, and Brazilian percussion ensembles, and I was in a seventeen-piece salsa band, and, and I was in a small jazz combo. I was playing in my own band. I was touring around the country playing music. So I was playing a lot of different music with a lot of different people, a lot of different styles. Uh, so I mean, the big my biggest growth was was in college and I was practicing you know between six and eight hours a day too. gotcha when I was in college I wanted to be an artist and I ended up being a writer but in college I learned how to draw naked people that's all I did and while you can get some skill there I was never taught the business side how to apply myself how to you know build a portfolio and reach out and I think looking at your background you had sort of a, a very sort of healthy balance between hey there are business realities about the music career and also I'm going to learn the craft so was it? Did you sort of actively seek out that balance, or did it just happen? And you had good instructors. Well, I grew up in, a, in an entrepreneurial family, so my my family's been in the restaurant business since the seventies. They still are. I grew up. I, I business has always been sort of second nature to me. I, I just it's just always been that way. I did like the lemonade stand thing, and 
you know, sold, uh, you know, sold stuff on eBay, and, and I, I was always a businessman. But I coincidentally, uh, it's funny that you brought that up because I went to Villanova University. At the time, Villanova didn't have a music department, and I was sitting in marketing class, bored to tears, <laughs> and said, "I just want to play music." Then I transferred. I went to Kutztown. They have a great percussion department. I'm sitting in a percussion class at eight o'clock in the morning, playing bongos with five other people who took it as an elective. And it's literally it's exactly what you can think of like ten people sitting around a room just banging on bongos. <laughs> and I sort of said, "What the hell am I doing here?" I said, "I can, I can, I, I already know how to play. I need to continue my craft, but." I don't think this is the right direction, so I changed back to a business major with a music minor, and so I ended up getting getting the best of both worlds. But I I sort of realized where my strengths are because mm. I even then I was I was the treasurer of the percussion department. Then I became the president, and I was running that. I was running I was running two businesses while I was in college. Plus, I was running my band, so I was in charge of all the touring and the booking and all that stuff. So. I sort of I realized where my strengths are and as a I can be an artist but if I'm an artist and a businessman I thought that that really gave me a great advantage gotcha over the years you, you kind of mentioned even at an early age you really worked in gosh I mean almost every musical genre you can think of do you have a particular favorite or do you find that every time you switch up there's something new and fresh and exciting that kind of greets you there's always something that's that's exciting and I'm the type of person who gets bored easily so I need to I need to play different styles and things like that. Uh, for I mean, but for the most part, I usually stick around. Usually, you know, funk, rock, soul, jazz kind of stuff. Like I, I never really got into heavier music. Like I, I was never a heavy rock guy or a heavy metal guy or anything like that. Not that there's anything wrong with. It, I just never gravitated that way. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I've been more. Yeah, I, I like a lot of instrumental music. Uh, I was into jam music for a while, so I was a huge fish fan, so I listened to a bunch of that. But and then got really into jazz and sort of went down that rabbit hole for a few years. And I think learning all these styles, you have to you have to do that. You have to go down. I went down the, the Latin rabbit hole for a long time and learned all that and then went down the jazz rabbit hole and then the funk rabbit hole. And, you know, so really really diving deep into each one of those to give me a great understanding of all those styles. Mm-hmm. So I, I like playing all of them, frankly. I, I, I mean, for me, I, if it has a really heavy groove to it and just a really deep pocket and groove, that's what that's what I'm all about. Gotcha. Now, with you, as a podcaster, you interview a lot of really big-time drummers over the years. Do you have any particular favorites, and, and why do they stand out to you? A couple of them. One, which, which is actually a He's not that big of a name, but his name's Steve Bowman. But he played on the first count. He was in. He was the original drummer from Counting Crows, and Counting Crows, their record August and Everything After, is my hands down my favorite record of all time. So having and I listened to it. I listened to it for about a year and a half every <laughs> single day, every single day. So I uh, to to have him on the podcast was amazing and we've since developed a friendship which is even more amazing and Steve Gadd who was one of my one of my favorite drummers of all time he played on a ton of Simon and Garfunkel records he's played on a bunch of Steely Dan records I think he's played on like 5,000 records or something like Yikes. that uh, so I had him on recently uh, which was absolutely amazing uh, I mean there's so many James Gadson who did all the Bill Withers stuff he's a I'm a huge fan of his 
and just had Chad Smith from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, actually, I had I've had Chad twice now, and to have him on, I'm a huge Chili Peppers fan. Have you know grew up listening to them, so it's 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 really iconic for me when I can talk to these guys and know where I was when I first heard their records, or when if they really had an impact on my life. Mm-hmm. To be able to say, hey, you're the guy who did that i was playing your drum parts when i was 17 18 19 years old you know now i'm 35 i'll be 36 next month and or in april and you know now i get to have a conversation with you as equals pretty amazing and as as well let's not maybe not as equals but as colleagues yeah so uh i still look up to (laughs) trust me i still look up to all these guys i don't think that i am anywhere near uh anywhere near most of my guests but well, then when you think about the drummers you've interviewed and also just your background and your story, is there something that, that kind of unites the drummers that you've talked with? Is there a quality, a passion, a, a sense that maybe separates them from other other musicians or even other artists? Most drummers so most drummers are sidemen. So most of them aren't the band leader. Most of them aren't the lead singer, aren't writing the tunes. So they're sidemen slash hired guns. So the thing that most people don't realize is that when when Justin Timberlake goes on tour, he hires a band to go on tour. He hires he hires well, actually he hires a music director, and the music director hires a band, puts a band together for him. Mm-hmm. So they go out on the road and they get paid, but when they come home, they don't get paid anymore. So they are they're basically freelance musicians. So Justin Timberlake gets royalties from the record and from touring and all of this other stuff. So he has constant money coming in, but the side men are not. So. But if you're a lead singer, you can sort of it's it's easier for you to work because you can start a band and you're sort of in control of your own destiny. So drummers are the guys who have to actually go out and find these gigs. They have to get hired. So they tend to be more aggressive. They mm. tend to be they tend to be go getters. They tend to be self starters. But the the one thing that's huge that you don't have that I haven't seen in any with any other instrument is that drummers are like a family. All drummers, by and large, I'm going to say, you know, the, 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 the majority of everyone, every drummer wants to help every drummer out. Every drummer is friendly. Every drummer, you know, if you have some things that you're working on, like drummers get together and trade licks, right? Mm-hmm. Like they shed and they show each other things. Guitar players don't do that. <laughs> It's like secretive. Organ yeah, players yeah. don't do that. Bass players are just too goofy and weird. To do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, every I love bass players, but every every bass player is weird in their own way. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I could say that I played with enough. I love them all because uh-huh. I'm weird too. Um, but but drummers have this, this just this family. They have meetups. They have shed sessions where fifteen or twenty drummers will just get together and they'll rent out a room. And they'll just play drums together, or there's all of these drum conferences and drum shows and all sorts of stuff. It's a, it's just, it's really strange that it's such, and it's such a competitive field. And drummers are just a huge family, which I think is amazing. Yeah, that sounds great. And it's, I, I knew you'd sort of have an insight in that that I, I wouldn't expect. I wanted to shift gears a little bit to now. Obviously, in addition to the work that you do, you tour a lot. You, you play live in front of stages across the country. Mm-hmm. Every, I'm sure every touring musician has got a horror story or two, or maybe even a great story, and perhaps both. Do you have anything you can share? Sort of things you've seen along the, you know, on the road that that just like uh, this is this only happens to a musician. Uh, man, I have so many stories. About 
I, this was this was actually an amazing story. One night we were playing uh, at this club in in Burlington, Vermont, at this place called Nectar's, and I mentioned I'm a huge fish fan, and that Burlington or Nectar's is the place where fish started. It was sort of the first place that they ever played. We were playing that. We were doing a couple night stand there, and they came down and said, "Hey, do you mind if Warren Haynes?" Uh, sits in with you guys. So Warren Haynes is a really famous guitar player. And we were sort of blown away. We were like, this would be absolutely amazing. And so Warren never ended up coming, but they said, hey, do you mind if Paige McConnell plays with you? Mm-hmm. Paige McConnell's the keyboard player from Fish. <laughs> and every single one in the band is a huge Fish fan. And it, like, it was the most epic night of my life <laughs> we played and then we ended up playing like we played the next day and the next day because we were doing like a, a couple nights stand there and but i it, i'm actually looking at the picture of all of us right now <laughs> um but just it just totally blew my mind and i never thought that it would sort of come full circle like that that i would be playing in nectars with Paige mcconnell from fish and it was totally spur of the moment nothing planned nothing like that and it was one of the most amazing experiences i've ever had it was, it was awesome wow, nice ridiculously awesome now one of the things you do with with your work is that you kind of help other drummers you know getting to know the craft improving what they do you know with drummersresource.com it's a great hub for that from your perspective do you find that there are people who are i mean i'm 48 people my age or even older so you know what i've always loved the drums and i've never taken enough and Darn it, I'm going to try it. I mean, do you find those people, and what's the sort of the first step for them to kind of start that journey? Two things. One, I see a lot of people who played when they were younger, and now they're 55, and they want to get back into it. Okay. I see a lot of that, which I think is amazing. I think that's so awesome that, you know, they sort of, whether they went and got jobs or, you know, stopped playing or just gave it up for one reason or another and now they're getting back into it. I think that's amazing. And for anyone who's just starting out playing, I think they should get, you know, get a cheap drum set and or if you can rent a drum set, rent one for a little while because they're expensive and you may find out that, you know, in a couple months you don't like it and it's going to be really, it's going to cost, you know, you're not going to get your money back if you go to sell it. Um, and just go, just take some lessons and start playing along with some records. Don't put any pressure on it. Just have some fun and see if you like it. Mm-hmm. Who knows? You may end up, you know, if, if you're, I mean, if you're 80, you may not be, want to be gigging out. Who knows? You may be want, you may want to gig out too. But if you're in your 50s and you start playing and you start getting a knack for it, you can get, you know, you can do some local gigs and 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 play some music for fun. That'd be amazing. Gotcha. I think. When you meet fellow drummers. Uh, let's just say that their skill level isn't isn't up to you at this point. W- what are their questions? What do they What do they want to know about either the business or about specifically drumming that you kind of find you hear over and over again? They're always looking for the silver bullet. How do I get, like How do I get this big gig? Or how do you know? How do I do this professionally? That's the biggest thing mm-hmm. I ask, or that I that I get asked is how do I How can I make a career out of this? How can I get that big touring gig? You know, with this band or with that band and the answer is the answer that no one wants to hear, <laughs> which is it's going to take a lot of hard work, yeah. networking, dedication, and it's going to take a long time. And it's like, well, no, I want like the, the secrets and I want <laughs> you know the silver bullet, and there is none. I had uh, a buddy of mine, Nate Morton, is the is the drummer for The Voice, and he has he has a great analogy. He said, success in 
any business, and but you know, let's let's make it to the music business. Is like building or walking across a bridge that you're building as you're walking across it. Nah. <laughs> so you know, it's one thing, one gig mm-hmm. leads to the next, which leads to the next thing, and and you know, next thing you know, I mean, so. I'll tell you a quick story. Two weeks ago, Chad Smith was in Philadelphia. I'm originally from Philadelphia. I live in, in the New York area now. But Chad Smith with Red Hot Chili Peppers, they were playing in Philly two weeks ago. I went, hung out with him, went backstage. We did an interview, hung out for the show, You know, stood, on the, or stood next to the stage and watched the show and everything. It was an amazing experience. But the journey to that was so long that I would have never thought that would have been the outcome of it. It turns out that... The company that he's endorsed by started advertising on my podcast. I become I become close with that company. I start working with the owner a lot on his other company. I get to know the people in the office, their PR department. Chad Smith switches from one drum company to this new drum company, DW. I'm close with them. I ask if they can connect me, and I connect I connect with him. I do an interview with him. He invites me out to the show, and this was in October. And then you know, five months later. I go to the show in Philadelphia. That whole process was two and a half years. Uh-huh. You know, and never would I have thought that would have never been if I if I if I was going for that outcome, it probably would have never happened. It's like twenty seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. It's just not that easy, right? Right. <laughs> and it's just it's just funny how you know that's why I like I like having the doors open. I like I I'm not a I'm not a say yes to everything kind of guy anymore. I used to be, um, but now I, I have a lot more. I have a lot better of idea of sort of what I want to do and what I don't want to do, and I've, I've sort of been down a lot of the roads already. But and, and not to sound like I, I know everything, I just mean if there's one thing that I know that I don't want to do, I, I won't do it. Gotcha. But for younger guys, you know, I take every, I played every single possible gig that you can possibly imagine. I've done them all. Hmm. Um, but but I, I, I like having the doors open of the opportunity because you never know where it's going to end up. Gotcha. Now, you've been in the field a while, although you're just in your 30s, so you're not a – I wouldn't call you an old-timer by any stretch. When you, What is the sense you get both from your experience and also talking to drummers who – the drummer you mentioned before who worked with Simon and Garfunkel, I'm sure you know he's been around forever. Is the music business changing dramatically and is it, is it – are there good changes or bad changes or a little bit of both? It's already changed. It's, I mean, it's it's a way it's extremely different than it used to be. Prime example: Hal Blaine was a session drummer back in you know the '60s, and he drove a Rolls, Rolls Royce and had a mansion and a yacht. And session guys now do not live that lifestyle or anywhere near that lifestyle. Not mm-hmm. that it's about the money, but you know, if you're going to do this professionally, there's some economics involved that have to be met. Um, but the, the change in the industry is good and bad. The bad part is that everything sort of seems disposable now, and everything is everything is sort of is sort of quick. And I think a lot of the music today, since it's it's quantized or for layman's terms, they basically put it into computer and make sure that all of the parts line up. So it sterilizes it and it makes mm-hmm. it a little a little more rigid. It doesn't feel as good. It doesn't have like this natural swing sort of loping feeling um but the good thing is is that you can be an independent band and you can get your music out there to millions of people relatively cheap almost free so it's sort of like what i do with the podcast it's no different than what what people can do with the band is you know i I release my podcast and 
there's hundreds of thousands of people all over the world listening to it. That wasn't possible 15, 20 years ago. It's amazing. You know, so that it is amazing. And so I think with, with bands, there's a lot of opportunity out there with bands, but at the same time, there's no one's get. I mean, people are getting record deals, but they're not getting, they're not signing record deals and getting $250,000 advances to go into and lock themselves in a mansion in Hollywood for a month to record this record. And then they're not going to sell, you know, 12 million records. And so now the record labels are signing what are called 360 deals. So they get a piece of everything that you do. They get a piece of your merch. They get a piece of your YouTube advertising. They get a piece of your touring. They get a piece of every dime that comes in. They get a piece of it. Mm. So before it wasn't like that. That's how bands used to survive on the road was merch because they own, they got all the proceeds from their merch. And so a lot of the money is being made in touring now because people still go to concerts and you can't replace that experience and, th- and thank goodness for that <laughs> yeah well maybe I mean there's companies that are working on well let me let me sort of digress a little bit there's the, the great thing about the internet too is that you, say you want to go to a live show and you can't make it now you can watch the entire experience on your 75 inch TV in full HD in real time in surround sound too, so yeah, sound. <laughs> that so helps. Like you turn out the lights and you put that on, and you're there, man. Gotcha. You, know? uh, you don't have to trek in and out of the, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to wherever trek into the city to go, or you don't have to park, or you know, any of that stuff. And then when you're done, you just get up, and go to bed. Nice. Uh, a year or so ago, I watched that the documentary Wrecking Crew, which I thought was terrific. I was kind of curious. We just watched that on Sunday. It's good stuff. And I was kind of curious from your perspective: is there a particular documentary you could recommend that really? gives insight into drumming it doesn't have to be specifically about drumming but maybe one that you've seen that you could say hey if you watch that movie you really get a sense of what we do uh the well there's sounds uh what's it sound city is a great dave Grohl did that did that documentary i think it's called sound city um i'll look it up but i think it's called sound city okay um we can check. i've seen it. i just forget i don't know why the, the name is sort of escaping me um but another one that a buddy of mine, if, this is more drumming, but I think it's a great, I think it's a great history piece. So my buddy Daniel Glass put out a DVD called The Century Project, and it takes a hundred years of American history, 1864 to 1964, through the eyes of a drummer, huh. and he explains why the sounds of music have changed through, throughout, from 1864 to 1964, when the Beatles hit. And he tells it through the eyes of the drummer, but tell explains why the music changed because of economic things and because of you know the wars and all this stuff. So it's it's actually American history through the eyes of a drummer for a hundred years. I love that. I, I will put a link in the, on the show notes page for that as it's well. Real, so I mean, it is a really <clears throat> it's it's drum heavy, but if you're if you like history or if you like music. Uh-huh. Uh, it's it's totally it'll be right up your alley. Again, it's it's told through the the eyes of the drummer, mm-hmm. but it's still American. It's still American history and music. He doesn't get too technical about like you know this is how they you know whatever. It's not like super super drummy, but it's it's heavy drum. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And then the final question is: and this is the question we ask all our guests here in Hollywood and Toto. What are some shows you're watching? Some music you're listening to? Or maybe even a book you're reading right now? That you like to recommend because I think often we're all kind of looking for that one thing to, to check out. Our leisure time is pretty pretty tight these days, and uh, a recommendation always goes a long way. Uh, I don't. I'm not a TV guy, so I don't really. I don't watch really any TV. Once in a while, I'll catch like a Seinfeld rerun or something. 
but I'm just I'm not a TV guy. Um, but a book that, that I'm, I'm, I've actually read years ago, and I'm just I just picked it up again to read is Effortless Mastery by Kenny Werner. Hmm. And Kenny is a really famous jazz pianist, but this book is great for any musician because it's sort of it, it's it, it helps musicians or mastery of anything really of walking down that road of of the diligent practice, the deliberate practice, getting the doubts out of your head. Uh, you know, because we as as musicians or or you know businessmen, whatever entrepreneurs. You have this self-doubt. You have this everyone is better than me. And then you go through this phase where you think you're better than everybody else. And then <laughs> there's this humbling experience. And then you have to put the work in. And, and so Effortless Mastery is a really, really highly regarded book, uh, to, especially for musicians, about just uh, you know coming to terms with, with all of the stuff that's, that's going on in your head and in your routine. Excellent. Day in, day out. So it's great. All right. Good, good tip. And again, Nick, uh, Nick, thank you so much for uh, taking a few minutes to share with us. Again, you can find out more about Nick at uh, drummersresource.com. Any other places online we can find you or you want to kind of steer us? Is that sort of your main hub? That's, that's the website. My personal website, uh, I just took down. I'm getting rebuilt, so it should be up in a few weeks or so. But I'm on every social media channel, and the handle is just at the Nick Ruffini. Excellent. Well, we'll include that in the show notes as well. Thank you again, Nick. I love the insights about drumming and uh, really appreciate your time. We'll have to check in down the road and see what else you're up to. Christian, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Alrighty. Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out HollywoodandToto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter at HollywoodandToto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. is here to keep you running with a much-needed taste of normal. To work, home, or work from home with the coffee you like just the way you like it. Whether that's a small hot black coffee, your daily 2 p.m. latte, or a bacon, egg, and cheese croissant and a medium iced coffee with oat milk, one sugar, two pumps of caramel, one pump hazelnut, a swirl of French vanilla, and a shot of espresso. I call it my p.m. pep rally. You should really try it. Whatever it is that gets you running, Dunkin's got you and always will. America runs on Dunkin'. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. MyHealthPolicy.com. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call.